team, I really appreciate uh, you sharing your gifts and your music with us and preparing us to, to come before God's throne. Donna and I are having such a good time sharing with you. I'm very grateful to Joshua being willing to trade a Sunday out with me so that I have the opportunity to preach for another church next Sunday north of Fort Wayne. And it's, the trade out worked well with him. So we're going to be a little bit out of order as we work through Philippians but I think you'll be able to track with us, and I think you'll be all right. Most of all, right now, I want to say thank you for the opportunity to share with you. And I want to lead us in a prayer, thanking God for all of his blessings. Father in heaven, I am so, so grateful for your son Jesus, for his love, his mercy, his grace that extends to us, extends to me, among the least of the worthy of grace among the least of the worthy least worthy of mercy and yet your love for me your love for us extends beyond our worthiness our sin our inability our outright failure our stubbornness our refusal to follow your will still your love encompasses us embraces us, includes us. So we gather this morning as your family, as your children. We gather this morning as brothers and sisters to encourage one another, to sing songs to your name, to glorify your Son, Jesus, to learn from your Word, and to challenge one another. I ask that as we do that this morning, your Spirit will work in us, that What I say, what we all say, what we sing, what we think, what we pray, all of it will be to your glory. And I ask that you will do this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Don Gentleson wrote into the Reader's Digest with an anecdote. He had given his son a cell phone on his 16th birthday. And part of the deal was, when the teenager was out past his curfew, he would call his dad, let him know where he was, what he was doing, when he would be home. Most parents have a deal like that. Mr. Gentleson, on a Saturday night, stayed up late waiting for his son to come home. He had dozed off in front of the television a little bit, woke up, look at what time it was. And was absolutely furious. He got out his phone, punched in his son's cell phone number, and demanded, Where are you, and why haven't you called me? And his son said, Dad, in a real sleepy voice, I'm upstairs in bed. I've been home for an hour. Somehow we thought that the technology was going to solve most of life's problems. We thought the cell phones were going to eliminate all the worry of parents. We thought that um, computers were going to lighten our workloads. We thought that time-saving devices would give us lots of leisure time, and somehow it just hasn't worked out that way. Parents still worry. Computers actually make errors faster than any machine ever created by man. And somehow, even with all the automatic stuff, we still are under time pressure. Let me share with you something I have observed, and that is the more I have, the more I think I need. 
Here's an example of how we get accustomed to things. After the 1991 invasion of Kuwait, once uh, the government was turned back over to the people of Iraq, Newsweek did an interview with the Kuwaiti Minister of Cabinet Affairs. He was asked, how will the people of Kuwait, accustomed to much money and much luxury, how will they manage now that the economy is so different? Abdul Alawati replied, they will have to sacrifice. He said, instead of having four maids in the house, or maybe three, they'll have to get by with only two. I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, and my text this morning is going to begin at verse 19. Somehow the Kuwaitis don't get it, but we have heard... Less is more. Most of us grew up hearing it is better to give than to receive. We've heard that kind of thing, but somehow it hasn't sunk very deep into our hearts and it somehow hasn't really manifest itself in our lives. And part of the problem is that those adages get drowned out by our culture. We're we're just constantly bombarded by advertisements, appeals, offers, and comparisons. They're always asking us, are your teeth white enough? Is your car quick enough? Are your clothes trendy enough? And it isn't all coming from ad agencies. We're surrounded by people that when we look at their lives, we think they've got it all together because of all the stuff that they buy for their children, the houses that they live in, and the vacations that they enjoy. And it is very easy to get caught up in the notion that if I had just a little more, I would be satisfied. If I had a faster computer, if I had a sexier lover, if I had a darker tan, then I would be happy. I want to tell you first, from my personal experience, that those claims are not true. And many of you would share in that testimony. You have been ensnared by that trap. You gained, you achieved, you purchased, you mortgaged, you charged, you acquired, only to have that satisfaction drain quickly away. Well, this morning I want to go beyond that personal testimony of myself and of you. And I want to share with you from God's Word how we can have real joy. God's Word teaches us that real joy is not found in achievement. Real joy is found in sacrifice. So let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things are, how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, 
fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to help make up for the help you could not give. Oswald Chambers wrote, Our notion of sacrifice is wringing out of us something we don't want to give up, full of pain and agony and distress. The Bible idea of sacrifice is that I give as a love gift the very best thing I have. Now, Mr. Chambers probably got that idea of giving a love gift of the very best thing I have from Jesus. In speaking of his own life at John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus is telling us that when he made his sacrifice, he did it willingly. Nothing was wrung out of him. Nothing was taken from him. Instead, Jesus gave the very best as a love gift. He gave his life. Difficult? Yes. More painful than I can possibly imagine. And yet he made that sacrifice willingly. And he tells us why. Now, we know how he did it. We know that he did it willingly. We know he does it lovingly. And then he tells us why he did that. Because he had the command from his father. And because he was obedient to the command of his father, because of his sacrifice, he was promoted. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and Savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Now, how did it happen that Jesus got himself exalted to the highest place? Did Jesus get to the highest place because he worked to achieve fame? Did it happen because he manipulated the multitudes to acquire popularity? Did he labor to accumulate wealth? No. He made a sacrifice. He gave the very best. He gave his life. And the Holy Spirit teaches us that that is an example for us to follow. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where the writer of the book shares with us the idea that we are to follow the example of Jesus. He writes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. What's the purpose of fixing our eyes on Jesus? So that we follow Him. So we walk where He walked. 
So we follow where he is leading. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here in our text in Philippians 2, Paul sets before us an example of someone who had this attitude of Christ. And this this man that he presents to us is somebody that we might consider a very ordinary man. He's, he's He's not divine like Christ. He's not an apostle like Paul. Timothy was just a regular guy. He was very much like you and me, except that Paul describes an attitude that sets him apart. Let's go back and look at that again at Philippians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 20. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul makes a statement that identifies Timothy as being in a very select group of people. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. I think I could preach a whole series of sermons on just those few words. And you know how rare it is to encounter someone who has a genuine interest in your welfare. So very often... Our interest is in our own welfare. The news media knows that. They continue to report on research and studies and surveys, research studies and surveys that focus on our own self-interest. I laughed out loud when I first read Barry Siegel's article, World May End with a Splash. It first appeared in the Los Angeles Times. It's a a light-hearted look at how we very often look at our own self-preservation. Let me read a part of it for you. Alarmists worrying about such matters as nuclear holocaust and pesticide poisoning may be overlooking much more dire catastrophe. Consider what some scientists project. If everyone keeps stacking National Geographic's in garages and attics, instead of throwing them away, the magazine's weight will sink the continent 100 feet soon, and we will be inundated by the oceans. It has also been reported that pickles cause cancer, communism, airline tragedies, auto accidents, and crime waves. Almost 99% of cancer victims had eaten pickles in the last year. So have 100% of soldiers, 96.8% of communist sympathizers, and 99.7% involved in car and air accidents. Moreover, people born in 1839 who ate pickles have suffered a 100% mortality rate. And rats, force-fed pickles... Force-fed 20 pounds of pickles a day for a month ended up with bulging abdomens and a loss of appetite. (laughs) Now that's crazy stuff. But that is the direction that we can go when our self-interest runs wild. You have thought 
about what it is that makes a person happy. What is it that we really need to make us happy? What is it that makes life satisfying? Is it wealth? Well, I've had the, the very fortunate privilege of knowing some fairly wealthy people. And as I got to know them, what I discovered is wealth is not satisfying. Is it fame? I don't think so, because if it were, the history of rock music and Hollywood would not be so littered with people who committed suicide because the stars found that life was just too painful to continue. Is it pleasure? Well, I have had some very, very good times, and still I don't think that it is pleasure. What is it that we really want? What do we really desire? What is really going to bring us the joy that we're looking for? Well, part of the answer is a purpose. To know that our life has meaning. The earthly ministry of Jesus had purpose and meaning. And that purpose and meaning was self-sacrifice. It was not for instant gratification. It was for self-sacrifice. Think back again what we learned in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right-hand throne of God. By his sacrifice, Jesus purchased our salvation. His blood cleanses our sin. By His death, He conquered the power that sin exerted over our lives. By His resurrection, He brings us eternal life. It was for the joy set before Him. The joy that was for before Him was to destroy the wall that was a barrier between us and Christ. The joy that was set for before Him was for us to live with Him in His Father's house for all eternity. That was the goal. That was the joy set before Him. Timothy caught that vision. He could see it. He could see the prize. And so he shared the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead, and now lives to bring us eternal life. His response to the message of the gospel was to take a genuine interest in others. He found his purpose, his meaning for life in serving others. He found his ministry, he found his purpose in sacrificing himself. He willingly, passionately offered his life for the benefit of others. David Roper was a pastor in Boise, Idaho, who shared that passion. Many years ago, Mr. Roper was on the campus of Stanford University, and he had gathered with, he was gathering with some college students for an early morning Bible study. He arrived a little early. There was an, an open space, and he noticed out over to one side, there were some objects that weeds and undergrowth and some vines had grown up over. He had a few minutes, so just out of curiosity, he walked over and he started pulling away the vines, brushing away the undergrowth. And he found just an absolutely exquisite, hand-carved, stone birdbath. Someone had invested a great deal of time 
effort and talent into making something that was absolutely beautiful, but was no longer being used. All the work that the sculptor had put into that bird bath had been wasted. When Mr. Roper saw that, he was moved to pray, Lord, keep me from wasted effort. Don't let me build bird baths with my life. Our natural inclination is to build bird baths with our lives. Our natural inclination is to invest in riches that will rot, that will tarnish, that may be stolen, working for things that we cannot take with us into eternity, spending our time on fleeting pleasures. And so we squander our resources, our effort, our time when the power of Jesus Christ is available to work in us and to accomplish His will that will make an an eternal impact. And so Paul offers for us the example of Timothy, a man making a lasting contribution in the lives of others, and then he tells us about another man who is also doing that. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit gives us the example of Epaphroditus. I want to go back to verse 25 of our text in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to review Paul's connection to him. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. How do we generally describe people? Now, we probably say things like, oh, now he really knows his business. Oh, she could sell ice to Eskimos. You know what? He's got a great sense of humor. She is really funny. Now, compare the qualities that we identify in people and compare them with the characteristics that Paul lists about Epaphroditus. He starts with, he is my brother. That one word, brother, is loaded with implication. One of the truths about brothers is that they have the same father. Paul and Epaphroditus have the same heavenly father. They were both born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers share more than DNA. There is a bond, there is a connection, there is a concern among brothers. Brothers love each other and brothers look out for each other. They share good times and bad times. They eat together, work together, play together. Last Sunday we talked about the joy that comes from unity. Unity within this church will be promoted... When we think of one another as brothers and sisters, when we realize that we all come from the same Heavenly Father, we have been born again by the Father's will, we share a spiritual DNA. Considering one another as brothers and sisters binds us together with bonds of affection that are much stronger than those that we experience with co-workers or neighbors or on a bowling league. You are promoting that sense of family by eating together frequently. Families do that. 
Families eat together. Families work together. Families play together. Families are bonded together with a mutual concern for one another. And we see that in the example of Epaphroditus. Let's go back to verse 26 of our text. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus had a strong bond with his church family in Philippi, and he was longing to be with them again. Now, the opportunity to travel with Paul, the opportunity to be a partner in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was something that he just could not pass up. At the same time, that did not keep him from being homesick. He was a brother to Paul and a brother to his church family in Philippi. Paul also describes him as a fellow worker. Paul is reminding us that following Jesus Christ is not only about ourselves. As I listen to Christians talk, as I listen occasionally to Christian radio, as, as I read the things that Christian authors write, I realize that it is so easy to get caught up in raising your family, guarding your integrity on the job, resisting your temptations, cultivating your own spiritual growth, that we forget that we have been called by Jesus Himself to make disciples. Making disciples takes work beyond our own front yards. Making disciples will involve spiritual warfare. We need fellow workers. We need fellow soldiers who will take the risks and make the sacrifices necessary to lead others to Jesus Christ. And Epaphroditus is an example of a man who made just those sacrifices in order to encourage others to take that kind of selfless attitude. Paul admonishes us Honor men like him. He goes beyond saying honor Epaphroditus. He expands it to everyone like him. All of those in the family of God who work, soldier, risk, and minister to the needs of others. So this morning Paul lays out for us the example of Jesus Christ. We are to follow him. We're follow, to follow Him to find the joy of sacrifice. Now sometimes that's a little intimidating. Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. He is perfect. So where in the world would I start? So in addition this morning, we have before us two men who stand as examples of everyday, regular people who discovered the joy of sacrifice. That's one of the wonderful things about the church. In the church, God gives us real life in our time, in our culture, in our circumstances, examples to follow. In this church, we have people who are following Christ. We can follow their example. And in doing so, we will leave an example for others to follow. It occurred to me that Epaphroditus is a man that most people have never heard of. 
Very often people run across his name when they're reading Philippians. No idea how to pronounce it. Because he's not real popular. And yet he was a man of faith. He was a man whose life made a difference. He was a man who was dearly loved. He was a man that the Apostle Paul holds up for us as an example of someone who has the attitude of Christ. So this morning, I am challenging you to follow the example of Jesus, of Timothy, and of Epaphroditus. To find your joy in sacrifice. Find your joy in sacrificing for others. Find your joy in putting the interest of others first. Find your joy in being a worker and a soldier for Jesus Christ. But I'm not asking you to make that journey alone. Jesus made a wonderful promise to his followers. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that Jesus said, And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Together, with Jesus, filled with his Spirit, we will grow, we will follow, and we will find joy. If you would like to talk to somebody about really finding joy, if you'd like to talk about what seems like polar opposites of sacrifice and joy together, I'm going to be around for a little while. Your elders are here. Take this opportunity to talk to us about finding real joy for your life. I want to lead us in a prayer. Father in heaven, I am so very grateful for the examples that you give us. The examples of men and women in Scripture who show us how to follow your Son, Jesus. Who demonstrate for us your genuine love and your boundless mercy. And I'm grateful for the people of this church, for this family, who are examples. Who are showing their children who are showing all the children in this church how to follow your son Jesus. Who are encouraging one another, spurring one another on through words, but more importantly by example, as together we follow your son Jesus. As we do that, Father, I pray for your wisdom. I pray for your strength. And I pray that you will fill us by your Holy Spirit with your joy. And I ask that you will do this in Jesus' name. Amen.